I am. How many here realize that we live in a world in need of change? Political slogans continually reinforce this thinking with models from the 2008 campaign. I just was curious. I started looking some up. Change we can believe in, change we need. Even this year's campaign of Make America Great Again, it infers change. But how many also recognize the change that the world needs is not likely to be found through political process? In the end, politicians can not bring lasting change. Only God has the real ability to transform hearts where real change happens. Only Jesus, the good shepherd, the passage we're going to get into today, he has the ability to lead people to rich and satisfying lives. We talked a little bit about that last week. But here's the thing. Change is difficult. Change requires a lot of work. Change is hard. In fact, for the world to experience the kind of change it really needs, we must follow in the footsteps of Jesus by laying down our lives, giving up our preferences, dying to self so that others might live. Shelly and I have been reading through different Christian biographies with our kids at night. Uh, the, other, the older two seem to be okay with it. The youngest informed me he'd prefer I not read chapter books. That's what he calls them. He's three, so that's okay. I understand that. But the one we've been currently reading is from Hudson Taylor. He's a British man from the mid-1800s who spent 51 years in China, founding China Inland Mission. The chapter we just read about, it talked about him giving up his British identity and wearing native Chinese clothing to the point where as he would walk down the street, no longer did the Chinese people look at him. They just thought he was one of them. Taylor was willing to lay down his life, his comforts, his preferences, his likes so that others might live. His work eventually led to over 800 other Christian workers living in China who began 125 schools and directly resulted in 18,000 Chinese people making a decision to follow Jesus. Because of China Inland's campaign against the opium trade, Taylor's been referenced or referred to as one of the most significant Europeans to visit China in the 19th century. Historian Ruth Tucker, she wrote of Taylor, here's what she said, no other Christian in the 19th centuries since the Apostle Paul. So she's saying the Apostle Paul did some great things, now let's look at Hudson Taylor. He had a wider vision and has carried out a more systemized plan of evangelizing a broad geographical area. No one since Paul has done what Hudson Taylor has done. Taylor shows us well that you must be willing to courageously lay down your life to change the world. In fact, here's what I would argue. I would argue that you will change the world to the degree by which you are willing to lay down your life. The greater the depth of the death of self, the greater the potential impact you can make. So we're going to continue in our scripture passage from last week in John chapter 10. We started there last week, and I want to continue in those verses. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 10. That's where we're going to be at today, John chapter 10. We're going to be reading verses 11 to 18. I'm also going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. We want to revere the fact that God gave us His Word. What a privilege it is that we can have that. So John chapter 10, verses 11 to 18. I am 
the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as, I, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Amen. These are the very words of God. You may be seated this morning. So we're in a series moving through the I am statements of Jesus. Because we must engage the world with his story, we ended our summer series with an understanding that we must engage the world, but the question is, how do we do that? And we do that by being Jesus to the world. And so to understand who Jesus is, what better place to look than to where he says, I am. So we started last week with the statement, I am the door. Jesus is the door that leads to a relationship with God. He makes a way for us to be reconnected with our creator. This morning we find he serves as a door, as our good shepherd. These two passages are connected. And verse 11 summarizes what it means for Jesus to be the good shepherd. Here's what he says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's his definition. To change the world, we must be like Jesus. And to be like Jesus, we must lay down our lives. You must be willing to courageously lay down your life to change the world because Jesus did. You know, the fact that Jesus is the good shepherd, it has meant much to every generation of Christians. When you mention the good shepherd, there's just something in your soul that resonates with that. And what's interesting is, is a lot of us have probably lived in more of a city-type setting, maybe never even interacted with a shepherd, but there's something about the good shepherd that is satisfying to our souls. You know, while a shepherd does many things for his flock, when Jesus speaks of himself in his capacity as the good shepherd, he immediately goes on, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. This must have been a rare occurrence among first century shepherds. So when Jesus is talking about this, this must have been an odd statement to make. But it is characteristic for Jesus. When a shepherd did die in defense of his sheep, it was likely an accident. He planned to live for them, not die for them. With Jesus, however, death for his sheep was the plan all along. And notice here, Jesus is not a good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. The death of a regular shepherd meant disaster for his sheep, but the death of the good shepherd means life for his sheep. Jesus, as our good shepherd, he gives his life for the sheep without condition. Where the hired hand, he flees when danger comes. We read about this. Jesus talks about it. 
He flees because his interest is in wages, not the sheep. You know, what's interesting, if you look up some of the literature of that time in the Mishnah, which were the oral tradition of the Jews, they wrote it down in the first and second century, it actually talks about a hired person watching sheep. And it lays down the legal responsibility of the hired shepherd. And what it said is, is if one wolf attacks the flock, he's required to defend the sheep, but two wolves count as unavoidable accident. In other words, the hired hand is allowed to flee and avoid legal prosecution at that point. But Jesus, the good shepherd, he provides no condition by which he is not willing to lay down his life for the sheep he deeply is concerned for. Jesus says, I know my own and my own know me. In fact, he knows them as intimately as he knows the Father. What a comparison. He knows you as well as he knows Father God. Isn't that amazing? Uh, living in the Middle East, Shelley and I would, would frequently see Arab shepherds, depending on where we were driving, especially in the West Bank. We had taken some of our volunteer teachers. We ran a school in the Jerusalem area. And we took him to the Valley of Elah, where David fought Goliath to do a Bible teaching there. And as we were sitting on the hillside there, some sheep started coming up over the hill with the shepherd, of course, along with them. So it was just interesting to, to be able to see that. And I'd heard a story while I was there of a time during the Palestinian uprising in the 1980s, the first intifada, that the Israeli army decided to punish a village near Bethlehem for not paying its taxes. The officer in command he rounded up all the village animals and placed them in a large barbed wire pen. And later in the week, he was approached by a woman who begged him to release her flock, arguing that since her husband was dead, the animals were her only source of livelihood. He pointed to the pen containing hundreds of animals and humorously quipped that it was impossible because he could not find her animals. She asked if she could in fact separate them herself, would he be willing to let her take them? He agreed. A soldier opened the gate. The woman's son produced a small reed flute. He played a simple tune again and again, and soon sheep heads began popping up across the pen. The young boy continued his music and walked home, followed by his flock of 25 sheep. Here's the takeaway. To know Jesus, to recognize his voice, the melody he's playing over your life, you must spend time with him. Those sheep knew that young shepherd boy because they had spent time with him. You spend time with Jesus by reading about him in God's word. You spend time with him in prayer. I can tell you it's been very encouraging. Last week we gave out these Connection Point prayer guides. There's some in your seat backs if you didn't grab one. And it's been wonderful to hear what God is beginning to do as he's, people are increasingly beginning to pray. And I want you to know I wrote this with a non-prayer in mind. If you have never taken time to pray in your life, I promise if you take this book home, just begin to pray over those scriptures, you'll be amazed at the difference it begins to make in your life. Spend time in prayer so that God can speak to your life and you can more clearly hear his voice. And here's the other thing I found. I'm given the strength. I'm imparted with the fortitude to lay down my life as I abide in Jesus. When you spend time with Jesus, he gives you the strength to truly lay down your life for others. He provides me the ability to die daily for the sake of a lost and hurting world. To change the world, you must lay down your life because Jesus did. You must be willing to courageously lay down your life to change the world because the world needs Jesus. 
There's an interesting digression that appears in John 10.16. The picture we have up to this point, it consists, if you think about what we talked about last week, where we're at this week, what happens is at first it's a sheepfold filled with animals in Jesus, the good shepherd, calling his own sheep from his fold with his voice. This flock constitutes his sheep, his followers, and those who do not know his voice presumably refers to unbelieving Jews from which Jesus' followers have come. However, Jesus says there are other sheep that do not come from the sheepfold. If they come from a different fold, they come from outside of Judaism, which no doubt refers to Gentiles. They too will recognize Jesus' voice. Praise God, in case you didn't know, we are among those individuals. So that there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is Jesus' vision for the unity of the church. Jewish believers and Gentile believers living together under Christ's leadership. Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 2. It's a scripture that we often refer to working with Palestinians and Israelis. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. Isn't that a wonderful scripture? Not only was it the vision of Jesus for Jews and Gentiles to worship together, it is the vision of Jesus for all nations, all races, all ethnicities to worship together. John writes about this in Revelation. You know, what's neat is, is we know what the end game is. We know what the end goal is. And so all we have to do is look, okay, if that's the vision, what can I do to shrink that? What can I do to get to where that vision is leading us? And here's the vision we have of eternity in Revelation 7. After this, I saw a vast crowd too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. That's the picture we have. And we can experience heaven on earth as we come together with people of all races, all nationalities, and sing praises to the one who's worthy of all of our praise. But if we're honest, we know we live in a day of racial tension. Is that right? Watch the news. And so for us to experience heaven on earth, we must be Jesus to the world. We must break down the dividing wall of hostility. The church should be the one to model what racial reconciliation looks like. Can I hear an amen? I really believe it's the church that is the answer. And it takes courage. A couple of days after the shootings in Dallas... There was a young black lady named Natasha. She went into a convenience store to get a protein bar. And she related her story in a Facebook post. I want to share that with you. She writes, As I walked through the door, I noticed that there were two white police officers, one about my age and another several years older, talking to the clerk, an older white woman, behind the counter about the shootings that they had gone on in the past few days. So this happened right after the shootings in Dallas. They all looked at me and fell silent. 
I went about my business to get what I was looking for, and as I turned back up the aisle to go pay, the oldest officer was standing at the top of the aisle watching me. As I got closer, he asked how I was doing. I replied, okay, and you? He looked at me with a strange look and asked, how are you really doing? I looked at him and I said, I'm tired. His reply was, me too. And then he said, I guess it's not easy being either one of us right now, is it? I said, no, it's not. Then he hugged me and I cried. I had never seen that man before in my life. I have no idea why he was moved to talk to me. What I do know is that he and I shared a moment this morning that was absolutely beautiful. No judgments, no justifications, just two people sharing a moment. That white police officer was Jesus, that young black woman. You know, our default is to be attracted to people who are like us. And so you have to be intentional about tearing down the dividing wall of hostility. It's not something that happens on its own. You must be willing, you must display courage to approach people not like yourself, to engage the world as Jesus would. We know we have that example for Jesus in the way that he interacted with Samaritans and others. In these few verses, Jesus says, he will bring in the other sheep. He says, I must bring them. So the question for us is, how does Jesus intend to do this? We have an answer. It's in Matthew 28. It's a verse I'm sure you're familiar with. And here's what he says. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this. I am with you always. As we engage the world, Jesus is with us. This is his plan for bringing in the other sheep. From our passage this morning, here's what verse 16 says. It says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. It reads a lot like Acts 18.10 where Paul, while in Corinth, he gets this vision from the Lord, and here's what the Lord says to him, I have many people in this city. And as I read through these verses, it reminded me of a story I'd read of a person visiting a village pastor and his congregation in a small rural community in Asia. The guest told the pastor, I would very much like to visit some of your people. The round of visits began, and the guests noted that all the homes they entered were non-Christian homes. The guest politely commented to the pastor, I deeply appreciate the visits we are making, but I'd still like to meet some of your people. And with a warm smile on his face, the pastor replied, oh, they are all my people. It's just that some of them don't know it yet. Don't you love that? I do. I think about that when I drive through my neighborhood. We live over here in Wake Robin. They are all future members of Connection Point Church. They just don't know it yet. And why? Because it's God's will for them that none should perish. We know this promise. But it is our responsibility to be able to go to them so that Jesus can go to them. My neighbors, the residents of Wake Robin, they're his sheep, but I have to go. Other Christian neighbors must go to them in order for Jesus to go to them. We bring him with us everywhere we go. 
Engage the world and bring Jesus to it. The world needs Jesus, and so the world needs you. Be intentional about bringing cookies to your neighbors. This is simple. As a way to establish relationships with them. Who doesn't like cookies? And everybody said? Maybe there's some health nuts, I don't know. You can make healthy cookies too, I guess. Have lunch with work colleagues. Influence them as Jesus would. Go out of your way to approach others who are not like you to begin to break down the dividing wall of hostility that exists between races and our culture. As you leave today, and as you come in next week, don't be in the habit of only talking to those you know, especially those who are like you. Pursue those who are not. And now that I've brought it up, it's going to be awkward if you don't. So yes, I've set you up. Our world needs Jesus. Our world needs you to be Jesus to experience the life only he can bring. You must be willing to courageously lay down your life to change the world because resurrection requires death. Verse 17, it's an interesting one. Read this. It says, For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. You know, from this verse, some might argue that the Father's love was conditional on Jesus laying down his life. But we have to avoid the idea that in giving his life, the Son wins the Father's love. It's not true. I'm going to summarize some of the other thoughts that we see in John, and here's what we know. God the Father gives everything into the Son's hands. This is John 3. He shows him everything in John 5. He gives him life in John 5 and gives his own glory And name, the Father has loved the Son from the creation of the world, John 17 says. Jesus' voluntary death is the pinnacle expression of the union with the Father's will and an expression of the love they share together. Jesus laid down his life to fulfill the will of the Father because he loved the world. The mutual love of the Father and the Son is seen in an act of love to the world in which the Father in love willed to save all, and the Son in love freely gave his all. I'm going to say that again. The Father in love willed to save all, and the Son in love freely gave it all. There are many people in the world today who would disregard the resurrection of Jesus, and for many different reasons. Muslims, for example... I have several Muslim friends. They consider Jesus a prophet, but they deny his death and resurrection. The traditional line of reasoning among Muslims, here's what they would say. They argue with me about this. God always gives victory to his prophets. Jesus is one of the great prophets, but Christian scriptures tell a story of the cross in which Jesus is devastatingly defeated. This is impossible, so they would say the cross never took place. But here's what they don't understand. Jesus is given the greatest victory of all time in resurrection. He defeated death. Death, in 1 Corinthians it says, is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Resurrection is victory. And there cannot be resurrection without a cross. The form these verses take is an interesting one. Hebrew poetry is structured in something called a chiasmus, if you've studied scripture at all. In an outline of the section, here's what it would look like when you look at it according to Hebrew poetry. We have at the start the cross, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and then we go out to the middle point, 
the task of evangelism, attracting other sheep that already belong to the shepherd. And then we go back to the cross. It goes back into the inside and the resurrection. I lay down my life and take it up again. I'm going to flip those on its side because I want to drive home an illustration for you. In other words, what we have is this. We've got the cross, we've got the mission, and we've got the resurrection, okay? And here's why this matters. The cross and the resurrection are a platform on which the good shepherd stands to announce his vision for the future. The center, the mission portion, is a rocket fired from the launching platform constructed out of the cross and the resurrection. Without that platform, there would have been no place for the good shepherd to stand and call other sheep to himself. The cross and the resurrection are the foundation for mission to the world. They are what makes engaging the world possible. Without the cross, without the resurrection, we truly have nothing. Between the discussion of the cross and a second discussion of the cross and resurrection is a plan for mission, and here's the plan. A vision for mission. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. The task of mission, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and then the goal, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. We can engage the world because Jesus gave his life for it. We can bring hope and healing to a world in need of Jesus because he conquered death and resurrection. We can be on mission for him because we launch from a platform with one foot on the cross and one foot on the resurrection. For your neighbors and work colleagues to experience resurrection, you may have to die to some of the comforts and life preferences you've set up for your life. Instead of staying inside to watch a movie, the Holy Spirit may lead you to walk across the street invite a neighbor over for a cookout. Instead of leaving for lunch by yourself to find some peace and quiet, oh, I've heard that one. I gotta get out of here. I need to get away from these people. Guess what? God gave you those people. Jesus may ask you to take a colleague out who needs encouragement, someone who's a part of the sheepfold who hasn't come in yet. What is Jesus asking you to die to so that others might live? You must be willing to courageously lay down your life to change the world. You must die so that others might live for eternity. Jesus wraps up this section of Scripture by stating, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And here's what I know. I don't have the ability to make you lay down your life. I, I don't. It must be done of your own accord of your own choosing. But I also know to truly engage our world, we must be like Jesus, and to be like Jesus, we must follow his example to lay down our lives. So I'm asking you to find ways this week to lay down your life so that others might live. Die to extra sleep or late night TV and take time to abide in Jesus, to know his voice and find strength for his mission. John writes a few chapters later, we're in chapter 10 and in chapter 15, here's what he says is, if you abide in Jesus, he abides in you, and in that regard, you will bear much fruit. And the question is, what kind of fruit? The fruit, when you look at the passage, is lost people. The fruit of abiding is the harvest of people who need Jesus. You abide for the sake of your lost neighbor. This is a scriptural promise. You may need to die to racial preference. Your default is to hang out with others like you. Be intentional about establishing relationships with people who are different from you. Your life will be enriched by it. 
courageously start to break down the dividing wall of hostility that exists in our country right now. If we don't model it, how will the world change? Die to a life of comfort and convenience. Mow a neighbor's yard. Bring a neighbor some cookies. Turn off that baseball game. Get out in your front yard to play with your kids and see who else shows up. Die so that others might live for eternity. Which of your neighbors will be in heaven because you chose to willingly lay down your life? What work colleagues will be your next-door neighbor in eternity because you took time to encourage them and lead them to the good shepherd? You must be willing to courageously lay down your life to change the world. Before we go today, the worship team is going to begin to play. We're going to close in song, but I always want to provide opportunity for you if you've come into this place, and maybe you're not right now following the good shepherd, but you have that opportunity today. We want to lead you to the door that he is, the one that the good shepherd guards, the one where he can, as you walk past, as we looked at the scripture last week, those shepherds would heal, provide ointment for healing, provide water for drink. You might have come hurting, thirsty, but Jesus is the answer for that. And we want to lead you to that today. So if you're here today and you would say, you know what, I have not really been following after God. I need to dedicate my life to him. I'm just going to invite everyone to bow their heads here this morning. I want you to have that opportunity today. Whether you're in the balcony or you're here on the main floor, I don't want you to leave without having made that decision to follow Christ. Don't leave from here unchanged. Jesus can change your life today forever. So if that's you today, you would say, yes, I want to be reconnected to my creator. I want to make a decision to follow after the good shepherd, to walk through him as the open door. Just raise your hand and we're going to pray with you. We'll get you a Bible so you know where to go from here in following Jesus. If you're here today and want to say yes to Jesus, just raise your hand and we'll pray with you before you go today. Anyone up in the balcony? Anyone here on the main floor that would say yes to Jesus today? I want to follow after you with all of my heart, all of my soul, and all of my strength. If that's you, I do want to let you know before you go, as we dismiss, instead of going out the back doors, I'd encourage you to come to the front. Pastor Jennifer's up here at the front and she'll give you a Bible and information on what it means to follow Jesus for a lifetime. The worship team, I'm just going to invite you to play. If we could all stand and close in song, just to seal this service, to say, Lord, I will courageously live for you all. Die to self that others might live for eternity.